another edition of the Red Pill Diaries. I'm your host, Rashid, and um, we'd like to thank each and every one of you for joining us, those who are joining us now and those who will try to join us later. I got a guest, a special guest in the booth. I got to bring him in, my guy, Matthew Eric. Um, let me see if they'll bring you in without any problems. How's it going today, my guy? Hey, how's it going, Rashid? I'm doing good. Thank you. All right. For the people who may no- not know anything about you, could you please um, tell them just a little bit about you and uh, what um, what you do for a living and, and, and yeah, just go from there. Yeah, okay. All right. Um, well, there's there are a few hats that I wear, but uh, I've written a few books on the Clash of the Two Americas, uh, volume one to four, four, four volumes also on the reconstruction of Canadian history, on the untold history of Canada. Sort of, so I, I, I do sort of get called a, a bit of a historian and I, but, but overall, most of what I do tends to be from a geopolitical analysis standpoint. So I, I write for a few, um, platforms like the cradle, uh, the last American vagabond. I, I set up my own uh, geopolitical analysis website back in 2012 called the Canadian Patriot. People can check that out. Also, uh, co-founded the rising tide foundation, a nonprofit focused on education, intercultural dialogue, um, with my wife, who also is a co-author of some of the books, and I'm a senior fellow at the American University of Moscow with Dr. Edward Lazansky. Um, that's a few things. So, you know, I try to bring it all together as much as I can. Hey, that's a, that's more than a few things. Um, I got my sage blowing in the background to like get out all of the negative energy. Now, oh, I, I thought you had like some toast burning or something. I was sure. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I often have my sage. Uh, so the wind, because I have the window open, because I have to check out on the chickens. I have chickens out here, right? Ah. And so I have to check out the chickens, make sure no predators out there. I have the window in this office area up, and I have the sage blowing at the same time and the fan blowing. So um, I just want to go into some, what do you make of this situation now uh, in Ukraine? And does it look like, the West is beginning to drop um, Zelensky and um, and their narrative because for the first time in the news, they're talking about Ukraine can't win. For the first time in the news, in the mainstream news, yeah. they're talking about it's Zelensky's fault. Zelensky is blaming the West. The West is blaming Zelensky. So where are we at in this stage of this um, war brought upon Russia by the Western world? Yeah, I think you're um, you're making a very good point in that it appears that a little bit of reality is cracking through the skulls of some of the geopolitical ivory tower grand strategists who had a very different idea of reality um, in their fictitious uh, imaginary world that they thought they were living in. And now that they've put certain things in emotion, um, they're finding that reality is not what they wanted to believe it was or demanded that it was. Uh, we already saw some signs of dissent uh, cracks within the machine already last at the end of last year, when I think it was the Washington Post, I want to say, even circulated um, a piece of intelligence casting the blame away from, this is right after the Seymour Hirsch report that went viral. Um, I forget which month it was. I, was it November, December of 2022? I forget. Maybe, anyway, and... This, this Seymour Hirsch report was obviously disastrous for, uh, the U.S. propaganda machine because it did make the point, uh, using a lot of hardcore evidence and insider information that the U.S. military was 
or at least a, a very powerful grouping within the Pentagon, within the U.S. military establishment, was actually coordinating behind the, behind the scenes to destroy Nord Stream 2. And uh, they basically, something within the U.S. establishment tried to circulate the idea that, okay, it was maybe it wasn't the Russians, but it was probably Zelensky and the Ukrainians. And you're like, well, right there, that's a bit weird, because you're up until now, you've been trying to, like, celebrate this thing as if it's be- better than Lincoln. Zelensky, like the new Lincoln times 10. So there was obviously some dissent about the narrative not working and how do you re- take back control of the narrative. But like you said, it's amplified and amplified over the past few weeks um, with what appears to be an effort to try to change course. Now, the difficulty here, well, Ukraine is a disaster. They, I think conservative estimates have it at least 350,000 Ukrainians have died. It might be upwards of 400,000 easily far far outnumbering it's like one one russian death uh has accounted ha, has occurred with every 10 ukrainian deaths or more 70,000 young men of of in ukraine have lost their limbs uh, the population went from 40 million down to something like whatever 17 million people like they've lost more than half of their people um the the whole thing is a basket case it's not working none of their 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 offensives work so um, I think the difficulty is they put so much effort into this machinery of public opinion and policy that is very difficult to steer it in another direction. But I think we're seeing an effort to try to do so um, by trying to call for like an off ramp of some sort um, for the Russians, they say, you know, to try to save face that we have to give the Russians an off ramp um, and give them a chance to breathe. So maybe we should f- figure out a way to come to the negotiating table. But I, I think that the the recognition that the that U.S. military resources are going to have to be allocated towards the China threat more than um, what's currently being done in Ukraine against R- Russia that that's one thing. Um, but then also you have I've noticed people like Jeffrey Sachs, you know, representing. I don't trust Jeffrey Sachs. I, I, I know a lot of people like him. They say he made simply mistakes. He didn't know what he was doing in the nineties. I don't believe that. I think Jeffrey Sachs is a very high-level player, very, very sophisticated operator um, who did know exactly what he was doing in the 90s. And I think he represents simply a much more rational component within the oligarchy, that faction that recognizes it is not in their interest to unleash nuclear war, and they would rather live to fight another day. And so he's been deployed, I believe, as an, through an assignment to be the rational, respectful voice that can recognize the problems of Chinese and Russian leaders and try to bring some trust back into the fold so that, you know, those, that, that oligarchy, which he is devoted to will be able to perhaps get close to and and then subvert the multipolar alliance in the future. Uh, But that's a whole other conversation there. So anyway, yeah, I think you're right though. But how this is, this is the conundrum here. They appear to want to offer an, offer an off-ramp to Russia, but according to their demands, dictates, and, and, and according to their policies, when they are losing at every turn, how can you offer an off-ramp to the victor when you're getting smashed on the battlefield, you're getting smashed in the political arena, and you're getting smashed economically? Everything that you try to do to them, it boomerang back. Russia has become the largest economy in Europe, according to all statistics now. So the sanctions have proven to to not only not work, but have been detrimental and deadly even to the nations that implemented those um, sanctions. So how can you offer an off-ramp 
to a victorious nation and demand that they uh, cede so many things in order to receive an off-ramp from a loser. Rashid, I wish I had a full answer to that very clear, simple question you have, because it, it is a wonderful, simple question. Um, and, I mean, th- this... Because people often I've noticed when they're trying to analyze the, the the planning and the methods of oligarchical manipulation, past or present, they tend to fall into one of two camps of either um, attributing the the agency, the the causal agency of action, those those planning groups that try to orchestrate assassinations, coup d'etats, wars throughout all of our history, as being either simply motivated by some combination of corruption and stupidity or inversely absolute genius brilliance um almost godlike powers of foresight and and power of action and um and I don't think either one is really correct but I don't think either one is false either I think that it's not exclusive one or the other I think there's an element of brilliance in this force of evil that is represented by these leading families and some of their auxiliaries within uh, the British Royal Society, Cambridge Chatham House, some of these these inner core think tanks. There is a level of sophistication and brilliance that has to be almost almost respected in a disgusting way. But at the same time, there's a level of stupid that's also infused into the mix um, based on on arrogance and a a tendency to to self-perceive as if they themselves were the gods they wish to project project outwards to their their victims. They want us to think of them as the gods of 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 Egypt, you know, who are immortal and thus slave. Don't bother trying to rise up because you're dealing with immortal gods, you know, like you can't just know your place. That's how they would like that type of imagery to be projected. But then they kind of start believing it sometimes. And I think they start believing in their own uh immutability. Um so that causes them to historically fuck up. And I, I don't know if I'm allowed to use that language. Oh, yes, but, yes. Sorry. Okay. Yes. But I'll generally try to tone it down for family friendly, family friendly purposes. <laughs> but, but I do find that looking at history, there are these situations that I see as paralleling what's going on today. Um, where when it comes down to crunch time, they're very good at planning, planning and the art. They, they have certain, there's a certain, um, awareness of how to manipulate the zeitgeist, mass mental behavior, herd behavior. There's things that you learn when you're brought into some of the higher up, like if you're a Cambridge apostle, like Bertrand Russell or, or John Maynard Keynes or uh, any of these these figures, you're you're you don't learn what a community college student in LA learns. You know, you're you're going to be learning a different a, a different anthropology, a different history. A different set of appreciations for real factors of the mind that you have to be aware of if you are going to be a manager of the empire in continuity over, you know, as as, when you go out of the university into life, you have to, you just to be trusted, you have to know these things, but you have to also have compromised something human within yourself along the way, which is, I think, with what many Rhodes scholars, unfortunately, get go through before they're processed in Oxford and then resent back to become, you know, Strobe Talbert or or Bill Clinton or any of the, 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 the freaks, you know, managing uh, Biden, like Jake Sullivan, Rhodes Scholar, or Susan Rice, or any of these cre- uh, creeps. So something has to be broken for them to have access to that, that broader spectrum of knowledge. Now, when it comes down to crunch time of action, what looked good in the planning stages on the whiteboard, all of a sudden they tend to screw up a lot. 
And I saw that with the, you could see that with the rise of the Hitler machine. You know, Hitler would not have been a factor in anything had it not been, he was a, a fringe grouping in the twenties in Germany. Nobody, nobody in Germany really took this guy seriously or the Nazi fringe group that he represented. So how did he become what he became? Well, it was, it was without the patronage and support of the Rockefeller Foundation, of the JP Morgan Trust, of the DuPonts, of the, 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 the Montague Norman Bank of England machine, of the Rockefeller Standard Oil Petroleum Corporate, which was like providing oil, all the oil needs to the Nazi machine before and during and after Operation Barbarossa, right? If it weren't for that, there would not have been a Nazi problem, you know? Um, so why did they stop? Why is it at a certain point, all of these, these operatives and agencies who put so much effort into the cultivation of their fascist enforcer, um, Mussolini had a very similar story. The Japanese fascists, um, were very much shaped by British, uh, foreign policy gurus and, uh, British militarists who were assisting them in building up their giant war machine, uh, from the 19, really from the, from the end of the, the Sino, Sino, uh, Japanese War of 1894. There were, the Japanese were already being cultivated to be a fascist war machine and they'd been profiled, you know, based on their sort of samurai feudal, um, legacy. That was amplified by those uh, advisors from from London who were sent down to to cultivate this thing, to use it when it became expedient. So why did they have to abort that? Well, they aborted that because it looked good on paper. Everything was supposed to work. And then Hitler all of a sudden started listening to his generals and realizing, well, I've got this giant war machine, uh, this giant arsenal that's been curated for me, built up with the support of British foreign policy that helped me take control of Czechoslovakia, that increasingly helped that helped me to take control easily of Poland. That was with British back-channel diplomacy and, and advisors the whole time, making sure that that was successful. Alex Craner did a, a wonderful, wonderful deep dive into that, that story. But then all of a sudden he's like, well, Hitler said, or came to the conclusion um, that I can be the senior partner. I don't have to be the junior partner of a new world order. I could be the senior. And Britain can ab abide by my desires. They could be my junior partner. And yeah, they'll get jurisdictional controls of India and different parts of the world. But but I, I can be the top dog. And uh, and some British uh, grand strategists were okay with that. Um, Lloyd George and Neville Chamberlain and, and the factions they represent were, were okay. They were like, okay, let's just, you know, roll with the punches. You know, we put all this effort into it. Let's just do it. And then others like Leo Amory and, and Churchill represent, they weren't good, but they they were uh, a little bit more able to recognize that this was not in their own, their own self-interest and that they, they would be stripped of a lot of the power that they thought that they deserved. And there was an, a giant faction fight, a hectic, fearful faction fight over what would be the foreign policy of Britain. The Churchill groupings ended up winning out. But they created a mess, a total mess that forced them to go in and have to abort their project to, to live to fight another day. Um, and then try to create new narratives. That only kind of addresses what you said, because what you said is something uh, similar but different, because they're actually at a place right now where they, I think some of what they're saying about wanting to create an off-wrap for Russia is based on the need to create stories to account for why things happened for the future. Mm -hmm. Like the old, the oligarchy thinks about the future more than your average Joe. Who's like we, that we meet and live with day to day. 
like, for example, as soon as January 6th happened, you immediately on, immediately on January 9th, you had a team of historians deployed to Washington from Chatham House, London. What, that's the, the mothership of the mothership. What, what Hillary Clinton calls the CFR as the mothership. Um, the CFR is the American branch of the mothership Chatham House, the Royal Institute for International Affairs. That was, that's the, that's the Cecil Rhodes Milner roundtable group that set this thing up in 1919 and had their American branch always. They had a Canadian and Australian and New Zealand and South African branch too to coordinate grand, grand strategy. They sent a team of historians to America with the explicit purpose of setting the record straight over how what happened on January 6th was worse than the Civil War. And they began to put this to work. So even though today we're, we're a little bit closer to that action from a year and a half ago, two years ago, shit, uh, <laughs> uh, they, they're thinking about, so we can see some of the, like where the fraud is located in that whole event. Whereas these groupings are trying to create a narrative, a story for what future children who are, who are like babies now will be learning about this thing that happened that's worse than the Civil War. Um, so they, they create stories for the future. And I think that that's partially what they're doing now is setting the stage for the messaging um, for what history books and narrative makers, myth makers will be saying about what happened in Ukraine. Though I think that it's likely that it is understood even by those putting that out that the ultimate size of Ukraine is going to get very small um, in reality, whether, you know, that's going to involve some of the, the Polish coming out, you know, who are, who are, who are slobbering, drooling at the chops to get control of their, their historic, you know, right to control Galicia and, and, and some, some West, West Ukrainian territories. And, and I don't think that it, that I think it's, it's much more better understood by those who actually make decisions, even on the wrong side of this, this game that those territories of Crimea and, and Donbass are not going back to Ukraine. I, I think that it's, it's recognized. I believe that they screwed up. Uh, but it's taking a while to actually get to some decision-making process. Because, again, they're so enmeshed in it. They've committed so much to this game and this agenda that they can't just go and they, – they can't say we fucked up. Or we can't – they can't say that the Zelensky plan for, you know, putting Putin on the – at the ICC for war crimes and kicking him out and asking for an apology. They can't say that that's a bad idea. But they know it's not going to work. Um, so they're going through the steps, I think. They're, they're going through some motions while actually preparing the groundwork for a, a reshifting, probably with a focus on burning, you know, trying to set Belarus on fire, uh, Hungary on fire with other NED, other types of operations that, um, you know, Samantha Powers was deployed to sort of go to Hungary not that long ago and, and reactivate or re-coordinate some of the NED-funded human rights organizations that are covers for mass chaos operations like from the Maidan. That's what they would like to do. Of course, even that's being preemptively uh, reacted to by Wagner showing up all of a sudden in Belarus as a preemptive um, action there to make sure that there's as much stability there. I think uh, Bosnia is obviously under under attack, uh, not attack, but I mean, the, the whole Bosnia region is being reactivated to be part of the chess piece again to, to, to light a region on fire. Um, but also, like I said, Indochina is a big one. So they're, they're also looking at it, shifting their forces much more seriously into the Indo-Chinese region as well with Taiwan and, and Japan going through some weird, weird stuff. And Thailand. Tha- and Thailand. Thailand. Yeah. They're, they're, they're lighting fires there too. Yep. Yeah. Um, 
do you think that the leadership and uh, I'm talking about the top leadership and those like right up under the top leadership, do you think that they have become a prisoner to their own propaganda and they they see the handwriting on the wall, but because they've been in a position of power so long, it is going to take a knock on the, on the head or a kick in the behind to force them to acknowledge that they are losing, they have lost, and that they have they have to regroup and um and and have a new perspective on the way this new paradigm, this new global paradigm that is underway. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. They they drink their own Kool Aid. They they yeah a, a lot. And uh, no, you're right. I, they they will definitely need reality to 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 cause them a bit of pain. I think before they're able to. I mean, I don't know to what degree. The 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 because there there's layers of decision making in the machine. Um, there's the auxiliaries, there's the higher auxiliaries, there's the actual agencies who make the planning. Very few are are in that that level of of initiation in the know. Um, some of these things were put on into motion over a century ago. Like as far as like a general broad template, it doesn't mean that everything has worked according to the plan for a century. A lot of things have gone wrong, and and but. The general outline people need to read if you, you know, if they want to look at how to understand the general battle plan, the blueprint, they got to go back to some of the remarks or the the writings that were um, uh, put on, uh, published by people like George Parkin, a Canadian who is in charge of the Rose Trust, who who trained uh, and wrote a a book in 18 called... uh, uh, Imperial Federation, and he goes through exactly the crisis of the the global British Empire in the 1880s, 1890s, faced with the growth of national sovereign economic programs of development that were spreading like a wildfire in Russia, in Japan, in China. The Meiji Restoration was bringing in. You had Lincoln advisors who would, were working with Henry C. Carey, Lincoln's top advisor, who were deployed down to Japan to advise the restoration of the Meiji Emperor. Um, but based upon what America was doing as a very different set of advice than what we saw from the British advisors who were also being deployed down there, where the, the Americans were saying, well, use a national bank, like that which was used as in principle in America, or but what, like what Lincoln did with the greenbacks. They're like, use that to fund the development of railways. In America, Philadelphia rail, railway companies were producing rail cars that they were sending to Japan to help build rail. To, to use protective tariffs to block the dumping of British uh, cheap goods. Russia was doing the same thing with the Trans-Siberian uh, Railway. Again, advised by American engineers and economists who were on the on the ground working with Alexander II and the Third and Sergei Vita to bring in the American system of political economic programming, which is very different from British free trade speculation money worship. It was totally different. They call both capitalism today, and that's part of the big fraud of why we're so confused by our own past. Is because it's been over the word. The word capitalism has become so simplistically comprehensive that everything was, which was done before the age of of, uh, of of communism of the 20th century is all grouped in the same basket. Different species of British capitalism: Lincoln, Hamilton, Roosevelt. It's all diff, just it's all British economics. No, it's not true. There, that that was a very different system. And, and as George Parkin. Uh, rights in his imperial federation, the crisis of empire, is that if nations learn that they have the right to issue their own productive credit for the, the carving out of their own destiny through the, build, 
by liberating themselves from dependency upon British uh, shipping lanes, because the Brit- Britain was only able to control the world by having control of the key choke points. You know, like, by controlling eight or nine choke points of maritime traffic, like in Malacca or the Suez Canal region, or the in- where you go into the the Red Sea or in the Cape of Good Hope, uh, you're able to control the world. You know, you don't have to control everything; you just control those choke points. But that means that nobody is allowed to develop their their inland uh, powers. They can't. And if you do have rail anywhere, like what Britain did to Africa, it has to be done in such a manner that only the private corporations like the British East India Company or the Belgians or the French companies control the railways. You make sure that it doesn't benefit the people, but it only goes from the mines to the ports that you could you could extract the loot and send it back to, to the homeland. And you make sure that none of the rail gauges are compatible so that at no point would the Africans ever have a power of building up some integrated system of 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 solidarity that's that and that's that was by design despite the fact that you could make more money out of that if you actually help the poor nations of the world develop and modernize that would be more profitable for the capitalist who was participating in that so it shows you that it's actually not about capitalism it's not about making money it's it's there's something more insidious bubbling under the agenda in the surface right so George Parkin put forth a whole thing on how to create a new global world empire to, to save the British Empire under a new form. It needs to be repackaged. Uh, Cecil Rhodes played a key role in laying out the strategy in his, in his wills. People need to read his 1877 last wills and testament that sorts, it serves as a manifesto for what became the Rhodes, uh, the Rhodes scholarship system, the Rhodes trust, the roundtable movements, the CFR, all of that stuff. That shaped and perverted so much, every single war, in fact, of the 20th century cannot be explained unless you understand the role of these, uh, road scholarship, road scholar zombies deployed, planning out the, on the U.S. side, infiltrating the U.S. government, working very closely with the Fabian Society, where one operates through Oxford, the other one o- operates through, uh, the London School of Economics, but both inter- closely work together. So there, there is a, a fabric around this. You know, H.G. Wells, look at his open society, uh, open conspiracy from, from what is it, like 1930? Or Bertrand Russell, read his, his, uh, 19, 1930, uh, this, a scientific outlook. They, it, they just say what they're gonna do. It's all in there. Or H.G. Wells, both of them, R- Russell and Wells were both Fabians. Um, so it was, re- they say what they're gonna do and why they're gonna do it. And, but they expect people to not put words and actions together. You know, so, but they, they create a, a, a general blueprint of, of what? What do they all want? They want one world government. They want to reduce the world population. They want to create new new religious systems that are more controllable by a, a new secular priest class. They want to, they recognize, especially people like Aldous Huxley really pioneers this. Um, and the work on MK Ultra advances this even further. Alistair Crowley plays a big role in this yeah. in his work on mescaline. On how to, how do you use drugs, narcotics by investigating how this was done in the ancient times during the rites of initiation of the mystery religions of the cults of Eleusius of, of Delphi. So they study deep history and they know how the, these inductions work to and how ancient forms of, you know, they study how ancient forms of, of mushrooms or, um, like today's psilocybins, uh, were used in different cultures or in ancient, uh, rites of initiation or the, the, the plant blight or the, the, the wheat blight that used to grow off of wheat when it would get sick. That is a hallucinogenic. That's the, that's the root of, of the modern LSD 25 shaped by Albert Hoffman and, and, and working, working for MK ultra and Sidney Gottlieb and, and these, 
So they're all studying ancient techniques of systems of control, trying to figure out how do they repackage that for the modern day. People like, again, H.G. Wells, all of these creatures I just mentioned, they talk about the need to create new synthetic religions to unite and manage the, the reduced human population in a new system where we are obedient, where we're vicious, we lose the love of our children, we lose the love of our grandparents, we become very atomized. They want that. And they want to figure out a religion that can masquerade around a virtue of selfishness that gives people the sense that that's actually my virtue is actually what makes me petty and selfish. That's They thought about that. Does it work? Well, kind of yes and kind of no, because at different times, they, they don't account for in their system a Martin Luther King Jr. They don't account for a John F. Kennedy, a Lumumba. They don't, it doesn't exist in their system. Human beings are supposed to be these programmable robots, right? That are, that are like a mix of like vicious animal mixed with robot. You could kind of like train program with behaviorist techniques. But then occasionally you have virtuous people who break profile and who do things that no robot or animal would do that inspires other people that, that completely breaks the program. And then they have to, you know, then the oligarchy has to either, either suffer from their own screw up where they, they, they underestimated something in the, 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 the players they wanted to use for their benefit on, end up blowing up in their face or human beings who are not supposed to be human end up emerging like John F. Kennedy from a, a mafia supporting fam or a, a family that's deeply enmeshed with the mafia. Joe Kennedy doesn't seem to be a good guy. He was, you know, American ambassador to Britain, loved the British aristocratic way of life, but his kids, you know, well, at least Robert and John, um, turned out to be really solid people who broke with the family profile and ended up working with like-minded people in, in the Pan-African movement in South America that they were able to see eye to eye with and recognize a common enemy and figure out a way to, to beat that thing. And they did some amazing things that, that the oligarchy has been working for like 60 years since they murdered JFK to try to put some of the stuff back in the bottle. It's taken them a long time to undo the mess JFK made for them. You know, this, this long later. So, you know, there's a, again, a bit of mix of, of corruption and stupidity, but also a little bit of mix of, of genius. Um, all together, it's all, it coexists within, within imperial modus operandi that I can identify so far. And I, I think we're, we're seeing a big, a big demonstration of that because partially the oligarchy has been living in a world, like you said, of arrogance. They, they've been enjoying the prestige of unchallenged dominance for many decades now. And those who were the more sharp thinkers, the Henry Kissingers, who are a little bit more rigorous and disciplined in their thoughts, um, or, you know, obviously even smarter than him is Bertrand Russell, H.G. Wells earlier on. But the, those who were actually rigorous thinkers are either over a hundred years old or long dead. And the current batch that I could see of, uh, heirs to this legacy are much more mediocre in their, in their quality of thinking, much, much more presumptuous, much more lazy, um, as well. And in some ways, much more touched by the very cultural, um, sphere of mediocrity that was generated to make the plebes stupid and malleable. There's a whole cult, artificial culture that was created by the CIA, by MI6 to make us all more, more pliable, but that it's very seductive, these cultural aspects, you know, the video game culture that, 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 you know, Prince Harry is a video game addict. Um, you know, the, 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 the drug and music uh, degeneracy that, that is out there, that 
it touches their own kids and their own kids end up getting affected by this. Like the Rothschild children, you know, there's stories you've seen of like some of the, the drug laced orgy parties on yachts that these kids are going through. That, that, that speaks of a lack of discipline of their own, of their own self control. That's not, that's not somebody who's capable of managing something as multi-layered and sophisticated as a world mm-hmm. empire needs to be managed. No, you can't be that kind of person. Or look at Biden, you know, like the auxiliaries that they need to put in motion, like Biden or, or Justin Trudeau. They need people like that or Ursula van der Leyen's to, to make things happen. They're, these are the dumbest people in the world. So that gives me, I think, a little bit of hope. I, I, I would hope it gives everybody a little bit of hope that they're, that they're dumb and predictable in some ways, <laughs> albeit vicious in others. Yeah. You know, I want to touch on a few things because I want to transition to the, to the Niger, um crisis and what's going on over there. And the instigators and and the people who have been, who have benefited from the exploitation of of uh, resource rich lands, but I want to go to something first because I hear this this line of thinking on almost all of the um, alternative media sites. <clears throat> Excuse me. They, when we talk about these situations, they they seem oblivious to the to the core issues of why Europe or European nations are de- dealing with a cultural crisis with an influx of, of migrants that, that would not assimilate. They, they, they seem like they are uh, oblivious to the, uh, the reason that these people fled their, their homeland to Europe. And they seem like they, they they're dismissive of, 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 um, Europe's, uh, main part in this because I hear them talking about and, and, and this is something, and this is no knock to Colonel McGregor, but I hear him, um, talk a lot about, um, growing crime, in which, which there's a lot of growing crime. And I hear him talking about the, the migrants, the, the Muslims and everybody don't want to, um, assimilate in Russia, in, in Europe. But I never hear him talk about the reason why. And we, we know that, that it is European nations that are in these countries occupied and, and, and siphoning off resources and then when when um uh vibrant viable um leaders pop up on the scene they assassinate them they overthrow them they um they in, imprison them and they, or they just make war with them and bomb the nations back to the stone age and this this is the cause of the anger by these migrants that are fleeing to the very nations that destroyed their institutions of government and these migrants who are, who are, um, angry, um, when they come to that society, um, and also on top of that, they never talk about the brutality that caused the situation. Why, why is alternative media not addressing and refusing to address the underlining causes of the influx of migrants from the Middle East and North Africa into Europe? And it seems like these are the uh, on um, alternative media. It seems like these are the most um, uh, learned and most skilled people, and yet they. It seems like it has to be a a willful act of ignorance to not address the main causes of these situations. What what is on your mind? What do you say about that? Hmm. Yeah, it's frustrating. I, I, <clears throat> I think that you, um, you're touching on an issue, I think, of epistemology partially and, and partially, uh, emotional maturity. 
um, which is it, it's 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 lacking, I think, in, in some quarters of uh, those who do offer good value in their analysis of the world, but at the same time have these weird blind spots. I mean, you, you could say the same thing for like you know some of the some people are are shocked to hear some of the remarks made by Bobby Kennedy on Israel, and for somebody who has been so um, solid, Bobby Kennedy Jr. Uh, somebody who had been so solid on so many points that matter to be so off to that degree of extreme um, is jarring. It's jarring to hear things like that. Um, Mearsheimer as well, you know, like he, he speaks quite, quite, he's like a breath of fresh air. But at the same time, when you hear him speak about China or anything, it's like, what are you doing? What are you saying? Almost, sometimes it sounds almost neocon-esque. Um, so, okay, what, what, so partly, partly I think that there's a battle of the mind and the battle of the institutions that shape the mind that goes back many generations. I, I you know I alluded to some of that stuff in my previous remarks. Um, if you could get people, Plato, Plato wrote a, a, a very important document called the Republic in, in book seven within the Republic, there's the famous allegory of the cave and Plato was making he was making explicit something that was never meant to be said aloud. <laughs> he was basically showcasing, shedding, making naked and transparent for anyone to read about the structure of, of imperial controls and the structure of what allows us to remain willfully under the control of said imperial systems, regardless of whether this is in Persia or Babylon or Greece or today's world. It's always the same structure. It's the general template. It's, it's always going to be that way. And so the masses, the majority, will be inclined to believe in the shadows cast on the cave wall as if that was reality um, under certain conditions. Amongst those conditions, well, number one, is that you have um, a willful auxiliary class who are allowed to know how the shadow game works and are the ones that Plato describes, you know, holding the puppets, making the sounds, um, that then the, those shackled who can only live their lives looking at the cave wall they, they believe the sounds, the sights, as if that were real. But then, so you have the, the, the masses, you have the auxiliaries controlling the puppets, and the, the shadow is cast by the light of a flame, a fire, inside of the cave. And then he's got the scenario of somebody, let's say, and he doesn't say how, somebody finds themselves unshackled, notices that there's another light behind them, and they, in perplexity, begin to move towards the light, crawl through and, and, toward, and, and out a little tunnel and find themselves outside, enjoying actual real light from the sun not some artificial secondary source. And at first he describes, you know, their impulse is to go back into the cave because it's painful. It's like scary. And I think everybody who's sort of taken the red pill has some sense of that feeling state on some level. Right. Um, but he's like, if you're, if you're courage, if you're committed to, to honesty, you will stay outside. You'll learn to, to, uh, train your eyes to look at reality as it is instead of as it appears to be. And then over time, he says the, this, and this is where the, the, the fake, the fake, uh, self-professed Platonists of the empire, because you'll also notice when I mentioned that people should read HG Wells and Bertrand Russell and, and Parkins and Rhodes, um, you'll notice a theme that they will often refer to themselves as guardians or Platonists. Because Plato, in the book, he's thinking, like, the whole point of the of the Republic is it's a thought experiment and testing different hypotheses about how a society that is capable of justice would would uh, 
would be able to be created and how the leaders of that society called the guardians would be trained. So he's basically looking at different hypotheses, testing them out and seeing where his hypotheses falls short using certain elements of like the Spartan model or other things that existed in his time. Um, and people will tend to read his writings as the oligarchy does as a literal guideline of what do we do as the, 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 the shadow controllers to keep the people in the cave. That's what they'll do. They'll be literalists. Now with Plato, anybody who's read Plato's dialogues know that the guy's hilarious. He's ironic. He's a truth. He's a, he's like a Promethean, uh, truth lover. And the, and this is the point of, of divergence. They will use that template to figure out how do you better find techniques that advance over the eons. It's been 2000 plus years ago that Plato wrote that. So some of the techniques have been more refined of keeping people in the, in the cave. How do you control academic ideas? What types of methods of thinking are going to be promoted that will then shape the minds of the masses as well as of the elites and the elites of the elites that need to think a certain way? Um, in order to believe that their senses or the shadows are real. But they, they don't like the last part of what Plato says through the mouth of Socrates in the dialogue, which is the true philosopher is not somebody who remains outside of the cave or simply uses his knowledge of reality in order to better shape the masses inside the cave. He says the true philosopher, that is the lover of Sophia, the lover of truth, not just the, the sophist, but the real philosopher is somebody who goes back into the cave at, at risk of their own death in order to help others be pulled out of the cave and also discover truth. That's the part that the oligarchy, they stop reading right before that. <laughs> and, but that's everything. That's the, that's the, if you make a discovery, then with that, that comes with a power with that knowledge. And with that knowledge comes responsibility, not to quote, overquote Peter Parker or, or Uncle Ben from, from Spider-Man, but it's true. <laughs> We're now morally, we have a, a, a moral weight <laughs> that our conscience compels us to use that knowledge in such a manner that we then can be conduits and instruments now of that truth we have discovered and help others then thus resist tyranny. And I think people like Patrice Lumumba and others, you're like, how the hell, knowing that you're facing this satanic beast of evil, how would this person have the strength of character to be hilarious? He's, he's, he's funny. He's courageous. He's brilliant. Um, he knows he might likely die as do, as do so many of these people. They're very self-aware of their, of the, the risks that you take, they're taking, but they make them anyway because there's something that they value more than their, than their lives. JFK knows that he might die. He might, he might have made some stupid motions as well, I think, like going into Dallas, you know, with your top down thing. That's probably a silly thing. He didn't have to make those mistakes. But the point being is they're all drinking from the same well that Plato is describing. And people, I think today, um, from the, from the healthy analysts of alternative media, they're, they're products in some ways of the system that they are trying to expose to change. And there's certain tr systems, modern ways to, that have been crafted to, um, keep the minds of those who would be processed through the universities outside of accessing their full potential and reality per se by giving us a false framework through which we have to use as a method of thinking like positivism uh me mechanic positivism is something that was crafted at the i mean it came, it, it came out of the british empiricist school the british british empiricists like david hume john locke um 
Adam Smith, they're all empiricists. They all believe that that knowledge is simply the sum total of sensory accumulation of data that could then be charted, looking where we then look for patterns in our senses. We then can extrapolate the patterns and call it a law. It's called um, uh, deductive, uh, no, sorry, inductive uh, reasoning. That's so that that's the outgrowth of the British empiricist school. Now it got amplified by the positivists of Ernst Mach and some of the positivists of the late 19th century. Bertrand Russell was a big one who promoted that, though he didn't believe in it, but he promoted it. Ah, see, um, and they said, okay, the, there is no such thing. True scientific thinking, which has to be applied to political systems, anthropology, sociology, everything, has to be scientific thinking. Scientific thinking means we look only at the hard data. And we cannot assume the existence of soul, of God, of justice, of freedom. Anything that you cannot chart or model or weigh or cut up into pieces doesn't ex- is not allowed to exist in these types of people who think this way. And they applied this method into, and into how we're allowed to analyze what's going on in the quantum world, in physics, again, in human systems, in economics. Nothing was uncontaminated by this. It's very mechanistic. It presumes that all systems are sort of like machines that can be treated and analyzed like mechanistic machines with just cold forces that can be described and applied by a formula, um, but not understood why. Like you can't, like this is where the whole stupid statement goes, you know, science is understanding uh, the hows of things, but never the why of things. That's insane. The only way science has ever moved forward is by, by creative people like Plato using a platonic method of, of paradox formation and generation of new hypotheses who are asking why is something the way it is and not other ways without that question there is no discoveries or revolutions of science that's been destroyed and so when you have a lot of really smart people who have been through military academies uh yale conditioning but they're good people they they still tend to bring in that technique of of dissecting world geopolitical events without a proper appreciation for the causal principles that are actually shaping the thing that they're talking about. And so the agency of like the oligarchy, how does John Mearsheimer or how does Douglas McGregor think of the oligarchy? Do they have, have they really worked that through the techniques and methods of oligarchism? Do they even bring that into their considerations or is it just, do they just presume that corruption and stupidity is at the heart of the the, the thing? And, and, how do they think of the issue of soul? Do they do they think of the soul? Because human beings die for the, the, the preservation, the, the salvation of their soul. Human beings do that. We make things happen like that. Our conscience is, is not material. And so one of the driving factors of our identities and decision-making for good is has always been good conspiracies is matters of, of humanity, the soul, justice. Um, that's That's causal. The, the oligarchy is reactive. They don't make discoveries, but they can try to subvert and, and like a chameleon masquerade like you're somebody who loves truth, but, but do so in such a manner that you're actually subverting the, the substance of the truth that you're trying to get close to and control the interpretation of it. Hence the British scientists or the British interpretation of science that's everywhere today or economics being all about the markets and money. It's everywhere. So I think they're just they're they're not able to sort of see a, a full a full contextual picture of the moving parts together that involve a multidisciplinary aspect because you can't just look at geopolitics from the standpoint of politics or simply economics or simply history you have to have sort of an ability of the mind to jump from to see how 
all of these are different parts of the same thing. And because they're, they didn't take the time to appreciate that, they, they misfire on a whole bunch of points that really matter. Um, so that's, 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 that's my thinking on that. I want to follow that up. But first, a channel member, Medi says propaganda. He was, he was following up something that you said and he said propaganda. It is related to neuro linguistic programming, changing the inner dialogue you have when making moral decisions. Um, yeah. So again, like, like I listened to some of these guys and they're, and they're thinking and it's, they're almost dismissive of the causal, uh, the cause of the effect that they're talking about. Like when I, when I heard, um, um, McGregor talk about the growing violence and the growing, um, um, uh, I, I say, um, savagery of, of, of America. It was disconnected from the causes of that. And so many times people give these little, uh, I would say elementary answers, uh, without thought. And when you are a person, a steward for a lot of people, sometimes it takes more than just that quick answer. Sometimes it takes delving or uh, diving into the, the question to give them a little bit more. So, so if we talk about the, the plague of guns in, in, in urban America. Let's, let's just use that for an example. I, I often ask the audience, well, if, if there's a, a, a plague of violence and guns in urban America, where did the guns come from? Because there's not one black owned, um, gun maker in America. Okay. Um, um, if you can watch bin Laden in a cave from a satellite, you can't watch the borders for drugs coming over. I mean, I, I mean think about no no one uh, addresses these issues because I think if they address these issues, it's twofold. If you address the issue, you can get an answer, but you may not get the answer that you were looking for. But how can you con- correct a wrong with wrong answers? Uh, you you've you've got to be able to analyze the situation for what it is and sometimes put your uh things that you hold dear to you to the side um for for further advancement mentally you know um let's look at the uh, let's go back again to the migrant crisis well first let's stay here at the at the violence and the drugs and then they ignored that richard nixon had admitted that he would use the influx of drugs and violence in the black community and play it on the news every night. This is what his top advisor admitted to. And they would use that to dehumanize um, and then vilify urban America to justify putting them in jail because they had two enemies, black America, they said, and I, and I forget the other, I, I think the hippies or something like that. Um, <laughs> um, so they wanted to get rid of both of them and they would use that. And then if we look at the situation of the influx of, of migrants in, in Europe, and because I heard it, I heard McGregor talk about how they're, they won't assimilate and how, um, that they are a tremendous economic burden on those European countries. And, and I'm thinking, okay, that's a no brainer. Okay. Why are they a tremendous economic burden on those economies? Because the nations of those economies destabilize 
the home front from which the migrants are coming from. They siphoned off the wealth. They uh, they put in dictators or corrupt leaders who fleeced the people and the nation. And then when it was no longer um, beneficial for them, they went in, they bombed or, or overthrew the government and destroyed the institutions which make viable governments. Why is that left out in the discourse amongst these learned military yeah. people and these learned, um, um, I guess, um, analysts across not just not just mainstream, but specifically and especially the so-called alternative media? Yeah, there's like a certain polite discourse or a certain type of discourse that you are expected to abide by if you want to be published or be res- uh, invited into polite society um in the mainstream sort of world and i think that there's some sort of a either conscious or in many cases a subconscious bad habits and 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 impulses that shape the strategic thinking of many of the better people who are falling under the 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 category that you're describing who sort of self um castrate their own powers of thinking in order to speak in a language that is acceptable to the class that they thought when they were perhaps younger and stupider that they wanted to be a part of and, and maybe be a leading leading element within. Now they've been shaken out of the, some of that stupidity and some of that naivete by life's experiences that kick their asses and, and force them to become more serious thinkers, but still traces still remain holding them back. Um the 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 economics is a big one and and I think that people have been really mistrained to, to to totally misdiagnose what the hell economics actually is. You know, we've been given numbers, theories, in, theories on inflation, theories on pricing, commodity speculation, like all sorts of like mechanistic crap that have to do with just lot, like basically what boils, what it boils down to the way that they teach modern economics is really through gambling principles extrapolated and given like sort of a veneer of science by having like, differential equations associated with them and you can like you know win nobel prizes based on how much like apparent mathematical garbage you can like latch on or put onto um what is ultimately a stupid hedonistic theory of economic value that has no bearing in reality because what is reality reality is like we're, we're there's a certain amount of people at on the world at any given time and those certain amount of people require a certain amount of things to survive and to thrive and to the degree that your economy is morally wired to ensure that investment behavior is tied to improving the conditions of life of people by building up infrastructure, by ensuring uh, reliable quality jobs, good quality. I mean, and the education system will always sort of uh, be shaped or be, be, be molded by the quality of economic system you have in place because you need workers who can be, can do the job of what your society is committed to doing. So you're, if you have, you know, a bold, like China and Russia, they got a really bold, uh, space program. They, they, they're going to be jointly managing a lunar base by 2030. If we can avoid nuclear war, that's the current commitments that also involves lunar industrialization, lunar mining of helium three and other uh, rare earths that are, that are in abundance on the moon. They're, they're as part also a scientific component. So that agent, that initiative, that goal, just like the goal that JFK set has what we've seen is it's forced the entire school systems of China to accommodate, to, to change their curriculums, to produce the quality of people that could then do the job of solving all of these unsolved problems that would make that happen. So now kids really want, and that's also shaping the, the government's cultural policies to encourage films and shows that glorify, um, 
um, space discovery, things like that. It's very optimistic compared to the type of crap we're in the West. The same types of fiction stories promoted by by our governing agencies showcase space generally from the standpoint of what? It's a place you go to die and get killed by aliens, you know? <laughs> space, nobody can hear you scream. So you get all this like very negative imagery where people here in the West, like kids who were surveyed in thousands of schools in North America versus China, were given 10 different jobs that they would like to be. Astronaut and YouTuber were were on the list. But it was an inverse list. Whereas in China, all the kids, vast majority, wanted to be astronauts. YouTube superstar was like bottom of the list for the Chinese kids. Whereas in America, it was the very opposite. No kid wanted to be an astronaut. They all wanted to be YouTube stars. So it's a very, it shows you the different priorities of the economic structure. Now in the, in, you don't get radicalization. You don't get much in the way of like terrorism recruitment. You don't get much in the way of organized crime syndicates that can do very much when you have a healthy, robust economy where people actually have alternatives to live in dignity and respect themselves with a mind. Um, if Afghanistan actually had a modern, if they were allowed to have a modern, um, economy, well, Kids wouldn't take five hundred dollars from this from some CIA cover group that to go and like do jihad, right. right? We wouldn't do it. And the same thing, it's like if you don't have the Wall Street banks laundering, like HSBC Bank was caught under the Carl Levin, Levin committee hearings in 2012, having laundered over a hundred billion dollars of drug money that Carl Levin proved was also going towards terrorist financing, um, with you know. Uh, narco terrorists of South America, the Middle East, all facilitated for, to maintain their operations specifically through the, the patronage of these Wall Street banks that need to launder this money to maintain their bubbles anyway. So what happens to the whole organized narco terrorist syndicates and all of this stuff across the world if Wall Street is removed from having the power of doing that? Well, they, they you, you choke their supply lines, right? You, you right. And all of a sudden, the issue of like, Drugs coming in through Vancouver or through Arkansas or other places, all of a sudden, you're, you're choking the sources and, but at the same time, you can't just do it like that. You've got to be able to do what JFK was doing, which is let's, let's work with South American leaders and our own to, um, to cultivate uh, jobs that are, that are dignified, that are worthwhile. So you don't just get people stuck you know, doing some less than minimum wage job or, or underworking like we have today where they're desperate for cash, they're desperate to pay their bills and they have to, you know, they, they find themselves in a situation where to, to just survive, they got to like do drugs or, or get into crime or something. So you, you, it's, they don't know. I'm, it's so misdefined for so many people today. And it's, I, I think that those intelligent analysts have been uh, deprived of an appreciation of what the hell is behind the growth of, of last thing I'll say. And then I, I know I rant sometimes, but Ukraine, you know, back in 1991, Ukraine was one of the most powerful, high quality economies of Europe. That's where everybody would go for their vacations. It had a, a, a robust industrial base. People had good quality jobs. So yeah, there was Stefan Bandera legacy groups and stuff that were, that were, that were fascist. But they were so, it was like Hitler in the 20s. It was so minuscule and uninfluential and fringe that it didn't ha play a role in much of anything because people had hope for the future. They had a good, a good life. And then after 30 years of self-induced, or, or the IMF and the Western financiers created a controlled demolition 
of exa- of the Ukrainian economy, creating a situation that by you know 19, uh, 2014 was a disaster. And, and Yanukovych tried to push back against that, but that went the way it did. And the the, the lack of hope the, it it sunk down to being the bottom country on on GDP per capita, the highest corruption by design. It wasn't an accident. People like Jeffrey Sachs understood how this works when he was doing this to Perestroika in Russia. They thought this through. It was not a mistake, as he says. Oh, I didn't know what I was doing when I was in, in Russia working for the IMF and working with Soros. I didn't know. I was really no. You knew exactly what you were doing, mm-hmm. and you were not alone. And and so with that comes a, a climate of radicalization. People are more inclined to jump into some weird, you know, neo-Nazi legacy group and and become you know a drug-laced fanatic, you know, on methamphetamines. Uh, as, as a, as a walking killer. That, that, that'll happen when, you know, that could, that kid could have been a, a, a nuclear engineer in another world, but it, that's not the world we gave them. Now they're, now they're fascist killers with Stefan Bandera tattoos. And, you know, I want to go to something like, I was saying that these pundits, these, and this, this is very pervasive in the so-called alternative media as they beat down the mainstream media. They do a lot of things that um, that is not acceptable also. And I don't know if it's conscious or, or ignorance. I don't know if, if they're doing it um, willingly or through ignorance. But uh, they talk about criminality and, and, and they talk about urban America and it's poor black, brown, red, yellow, and uh, red and white people. They, they talk about people who are, who are uh, and, and I don't advocate criminality on any level. I think uh, criminal actions should be punished according to the law. But there cannot be two sets of this. How can, on one hand, we be so against a guy um, stealing a pair of shoes or, or or some food to eat, right? And then we see the criminality of leaders of government investing in, uh, have like like um, uh, Nancy Pelosi, insider trading, and she's rewarded with the speakership, or. Or we see Joe Biden, criminality in Ukraine, and he's the president, went from vice president to president. We see um, criminality on levels unheard of. And these people don't go to jail. They don't get um, um, uh, demonized in the media. They don't um, uh, become uh, this villain. It is the poor people who are barely making it um, that become the um the villains and and the criminals and the and the convicts while the people who steal tens of millions tens of billions and hundreds of billions of dollars play musical chairs through through these think tanks and government organizations and how is that just and why are these pundits allowing it or or if they address it they only address it if they have a a dog in a race if 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 they're pro trump they'll address it against um Biden, if they're pro-Biden, they'll address it against Trump. But I mean, I mean, why is it uh, so cons- um Why should it be so concerning to the masses? I'm saying yeah. that they have you um, thinking of this trivial stuff. Why people are stealing hundreds of billions of dollars? Like the guy, what is his name? I, I forget his name. Um, the um, the guy in the crypto, uh, the curly hair guy. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, Bankman Freed. Uh, uh, yeah, the guy uh, was doing all kind of uh, criminal deeds. They locked him up. They put him away for, out of the camera after the, the, the stuff blew over. And now the guy's out of jail and said he's not facing any charges. Billions and billions of dollars. Yeah. I mean, how is that not criminal 
and, and I'm saying this because, um, and, and I'm not harping on um, Colonel McGregor, but I, but, but I heard a show that he did the other day. And I'm saying, how is that not criminality? How is that not something that should be on the, on the front burner and a person going into a store stealing because of necessity? Mm-hmm. It's criminality. But mm-hmm. these people who are wealthy, rich, and, and powerful are stealing because they have the power to do it. Because it's in their grasp, and that's not criminality. I, I mean, make that make sense. Man, no, nah, you're you're asking tough, important <laughs> questions that should be asked. That you know, I just found out that Justin Trudeau, um, when he was made, and I don't say elected, but I, when he was made Prime Minister of Canada, his net worth was ten million dollars, and today his net worth is upwards of three hundred and twenty million dollars. He's got personal uh, connections directly to um, technologies, lipo nanoparticle technologies that were used in every single jab that was that was distributed. That um, oh man, there's there's so many levels of graft, um, which is part of I, th- I think the on on a broad level, you know, the, the the loss of the mandate of heaven. Like you're you're we're in a we're in a society which has has lost the moral fitness to survive. And, and when you allow this degree of Nero, like it's really Nero like corruption, um, like Rome was Rome always destined to collapse. Not necessarily because when you look at the Rome, it wasn't always an empire. It was a Republic first. And, um, and it was, you know, it had viability when it was still a Republic. It could have preserved its moral viability when Cicero was alive. Look at what, if people had listened to Cicero, he did his own version of Plato's Republic in the form of his Commonwealth or his laws. He did another book that's kind of like Plato's laws, but it's Cicero's laws. He was a Platonist. He was a, he studied, he was a devoted student of the Platonic method and Plato. And he was carrying on that tradition as a leading advisor of the government. And, um, and people loved him. He was an eloquent, hilarious speaker. He had access to his human sense of humor, humility, despised injustice, but he was able to work within the system too, which is like making him extra dangerous. Um, he had a lot of bad enemies and, um, and they killed him, right? Like what happened? He, he got his own Socrates moment at a certain point when Mark Antony demanded that, uh, that he, his head be chopped off and his tongue be, be stripped out so that Antony could stick it on his wall. Um, but you know, he made the point if, if you, that, that, and Augustine also made the same same point. Actually, Augustine cites Cicero because Augustine is also a Platonic. He's a Platonist. He's writing in Platonic dialogue. Saint Augustine at the end of the Roman Empire, and people are wondering, like, well, why why is the Roman Empire collapsing? You know, the the the, the Visigoths and the Hordes are, are coming in. Everything's on fire. It's like four hundred, you know, four ten uh, AD. The Western system is collapsing, and Augustine writes the City of God, and in the City of God, he cites Cicero. He's like, look, Cicero even pointed out that we, it's not because of, because people are blaming Christianity. They're like, ah, oh, it's because we, uh, we became Christian. That became the state religion. That's why the gods are punishing us for abandoning them. And, and so we have to kill the Christians now. Um, and so Augustine's like, well, wait a minute. We were already bad before Christianity even existed. We were already doing bad. We killed Cicero. <laughs> and, and he cites Cicero and Cicero makes the point that, and Cicero is writing this in like 60 or 56 BC. Um, that Rome lost its moral fitness really with the, the second Punic war and the decision to abandon the treaty, the, the alliance with Carthage, uh, 
that that Rome had before when Rome was still a republic for 250 years. Rome had a strategic alliance with Carthage and they fought wars together. They defended themselves with a common security treaty um, from the days of like Solon, really. And then something happens inside of Rome's elite and they stab Carthage in the back and they start launching wars of aggression against their former ally. They canceled their 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 peace, uh, their, their alliance. This is kind of like what what the United States did. If you think about uh, our our friendship with Russia and China, who we fought side by side with to put down the Nazi machine, that was a U.S. Russia China brotherhood, and we stabbed them in the back. We went empire. Um, you know, it's very similar. The whole Vietnam War was sort of our own version of the Peloponnesian War. The Peloponnesian War was the war that saw Athens earlier on in the right three hundred or so, uh, no, th- uh, three hundred and ninety nine or a little bit, no, 420 actually, uh, B- BC was when Athens had their ally Sparta that they worked together in the Delian League to, in defense of a common threat of, of the Persian hordes of, of the Neo-Babylonian Empire. Um, they, they worked together. They had an alliance. They fought brave battles together boldly against this otherwise fascist, uh, prospect of world government under these, these, uh, cults and cults within cults that were like the managing structures of at the time the Persian Empire that that fell quite far from the aspirations of Cyrus the Great, but but what happens with Athens? They get some affluence, they get some money, they get some power because they do such a good job. They had such virtue, but all of a sudden they lose it. They get corrupted with all of that that abundance, and the new age of the Sophists comes out, and they start stabbing their allies in the back. They start declaring war on all of their allies. Sparta, the smaller Delian League countries, all have to start paying paying tribute to, to Athens. They start declaring unilateral wars of aggression against their allies, and they lose the moral fitness to survive. Socrates and Plato try to resist that 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 collapse of morality, but peop- it doesn't last long, and, and ultimately they get what ca- what came to them. You you, you you fall out of the mandate of heaven. You, you stop o- obeying the, the natural law, which is a moral law as well as a physical, and you will pay the consequences. You will collapse, and the same thing with Cicero. He's like, look, unless we can restore back what we what we lost when we when we said Carthage Delenda est, and we killed all of the men after they surrendered, all of the men and, and women or men and children were killed. The women and children were put into slavery of Carthage, and we didn't accept their surrender even. Um, we at the, unless we can restore back the previous morality that we lost, Cicero is making the point that we're going to become an empire and we're going to die. <laughs> like the universe will will strike us down at some point because of that choice. And it was a choice. And they killed him, just like they killed Socrates. The Democratic Party of, of Athens killed Socrates. Keep that in mind. It was a Democratic uh, vote that was done in the jury. And, and and so Rome became an empire. And Rome started just crushing morality, crushing the, the poorest of the people around the outskirts that had to stay poorer and poorer and poorer and fight each other to feed the, the capital that became decadent with just festivals, right? 230 days of the year of Rome's capitals were festival days. Of, of circuses and wine and bread. And so people became too stupid to think about upon what flimsy foundations was the pleasure that they were enjoying. What was it, what was it based? It was based on evil, keeping the people on the outskirts enslaved, poor, fighting each other. And so the empire became increasingly unviable. And when it collapsed, it, it made so many enemies who had so much resentment towards them who could have been their allies. The Visigoths, the Ostrogoths, all of these other groups in a, you know, they, could have been the allies of Rome if they treated them like honest, natural human beings, but they didn't. So they built up all this animosity, and then all of a sudden you start getting these onslaughts of waves 
of a tax, right? And you've got drunk decadent auxiliaries managing the Senate, managing the Praetorian Guard, managing things who are supposed to now be the defenders of Rome. But these are people who themselves are doing like the debauched orgies and shit and like, you know, like doing the vomitorium so that they keep keep drinking like that's their culture. So they're not equipped to defend their 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 uh government. And so, you know, Augustine is also saying, like, look, if we go to Christian principles, we can restore our mandate of heaven and become um we, we can avoid what's coming on to us now if we actually act because right now we're putting on the Christian clothing, but it's still and Augustine is making the point, you know, inside of a city of God, it's still all pagan. Like it's all the same corrupt pagan mystery schools that have been repackaged and called Christian for political reasons, but we're not acting with love of God, love of our fellow man. We're not acting like Christ. So we're not really Christian. And he's, he's, you know, he's fighting all these different pseudo Christian sects, uh, around him. Um, and Rome doesn't listen to Augustine and Rome ends up decaying and collapsing from within. So I think we're at that place right now of just like such extreme decadence and corruption mm-hmm. that uh, if we have a small window of opportunity to, you know, God willing, rediscover what made us good, what made us possible in the first place. And if we don't, we're going to get what's coming at us, you know, and, and, and hopefully the next generation of Americans who or several, maybe it might be a fit, several generations that have to be, we might go into a dark age. We might go into a dark age and forget the things we used to know uh, completely. The fact that Russia and China have, are not decadent or corrupt. They, they've really, there is corruption and decadence within, but I'm not, but that's not what's defining Russia and China today or many of the countries that have suffered so much under globalization there, there is like a real awakening of real statecraft and maturity. Like there are adults in the room. Um, that gives me hope because all now you have potentially the the torch of civilization being picked up willfully by real mature human beings who don't want to self sacrifice. And that gives me some hope that maybe they, you know, that example because that example is there, it it gives us a reference point to look at well, what does sanity look like? If that wasn't there, I'd be a lot more depressed. I, I'd probably, we'd probably not be having this conversation if there was actually, if everything was equally corrupt, we wouldn't be having this conversation. What am I saying? We'd be <laughs> in our slave colony eating bugs, <laughs> waiting for our suicide pill. <laughs> I, I'm going to highlight Mehdi again, and I'm going to address something he said up in here. He's a channel member, so I, I'm making sure that I highlight him. Mehdi said, uh-oh, let's see. okay, uh, it's one before that. Um, he says, um, like the Biden administration has, we have broken every treaty and promise we have signed with our with other countries. How can a leader of any country trust the U.S. to not screw them over? Our country has no honors. Now, everything that you said is right, but it wasn't just Biden. It was all of his predecessors, including Donald Trump, who took the United States out of a age-old nuclear treaty also, an uh, international treaty. So it was it was his predecessors, and, and to be honest with you, ask the Indians how um, trustworthy the United States treaties are. Ask ask the American Indians how many of those treaties have America lived up to, and you'll get this number right here. So now tra- transitioning to um and 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 good questioning, good uh, comments, many um transitioning to Niger. So on August 5th, or a little bit before August 5th, 
um, Niger, the, uh, the new leadership asked for all Western um, troops to be removed. All Western troops to be removed. That's Italy, that's France, that's the United States, that's Canada. <laughs> There's a lot of these other nations that most people don't know have bases in the Sahel and, yeah. and, and that region over there. Now, this is on the 5th, right after this was asked by the government, the military, and the people of Niger, um, Paris refused to re- withdraw its troops from Niger. Now, why is it, okay, they are demanding that Russia de- de- uh, de- uh, redeploy its troops from Ukraine back to Russian territory because it's an affront to, to Ukrainian uh, uh, territorial uh, integrity and sovereignty, yet France, the United States, Italy, and all of these um, NATO nations are refusing to remove their troops and, and exit their bases in in um, Niger. And um, before you answer that, th- I, 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 I was watching something, and I didn't know that the the degree of, of theft by France was so great in, in, in the last 20, 20 or 30 years. I did not know that, uh, the uranium, France was, um, the uranium was being sold for roughly close to $200 a, a pop. And the, uh, and Niger was getting no more than $11 per, per sale. And then, um, 60% of that was kickbacks to the corrupt government that they put in um, into power to maintain, and and then you had the four percent or so trickle down to the people. Um, how is that not um, uh, predatory? How is that not uh, uh, criminal? As as um, Colonel McGregor and others talk about criminality in the United States, how is that not criminal on a stage unlike anything you've ever heard before? I mean, it's going back to the, 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 um, there's a lot of comeuppance, a lot of comeuppance that, uh, we're facing. And you, you brought up some of the, just the simple example of the, the Native Americans, um, which I think touches on this in some ways because there was, uh, there's so much abuse and lies and manipulation to the Native American community of North America and and Central and South America, for that matter, by the colonial powers that that came in um, over the over the centuries. And um, and part of there there was a fight. You know, like when, when you read Benjamin Franklin's writings and you look at his works on um, uh, the need to respect the the different native tribes to not stab them in the back the way the british had done so much but to to treat them differently to treat them like like actual respectful human beings and to give them and share with them the best of what the west has been able to develop while at the same time not smothering them or forcing on onto them what we demand that they be but to respect their their that was a, that's that's the challenge for everybody every every major civilization when encountering um weaker, weaker civilizational groupings is the challenge of can you, can you, do you have the moral, uh, integrity and creative vitality to treat them as they deserve to be treated while at the same time offering them the good that we can offer them, right? So like running water, 
innovations in agriculture. Look at what China's doing for the, for, I think the Uyghurs or like the, actually here's a great example. The way that China deals with minority groups in China, whether the Tibetan or Uyghurs, ignore what the CIA has been telling us they're doing, but actually let's just look at what they're doing and their approach. Have we seen the language, the language groups that were pra- of, of Xinjiang disappeared? Do we see those languages disappeared? Or the, the, the Buddhist traditions of Tibet or the language groups of Tibet, have they been crushed? No. We see that they are being taught, even in the modern uh, school systems of West and South uh, China. The, the, the traditional garbs, the, the dances, there's community centers that are bustling, thriving, as well as high-speed rail. And you get a better internet connection in uh, Tibet than you get in Montreal, Canada, unfortunately. <laughs> um, so you, you, their technique and technology is one thing. The spirit of the people is another thing. And they have to sort of, you have to respect the spirit of the people and their, their distinct identities. While at the same time, if there's something that, you know, is, is a new technique that we've discovered that, that we can help you with, will help you develop water desalination. It's a technique. You deserve to know it, right? Like, or nuclear power, like the atom is the atom. We're all made up of atoms. What you're going to say some people, that's only like a Western tradition, atomic power. That's why Africans are not part of their, their culture matrix that they shouldn't access nuclear power because that's what the West does. It's like, they're all made of atoms. If they, if they had the knowledge of how the atom works, they would discover that when you split off heavy, heavy fissile atoms, some of that, what was material in the atomic mass disappears and becomes energy that if you can harness that and put it to work, you can make abundant electricity. You can desalinate mass water. Do you, do you not think that people in Africa would, would not like to have air conditioning and, and refrigeration and, and clean water? Is that not something that they would like to have and make better? Of course, everybody would like that. They don't, and, and then we're told, oh, but they like, they, that would be infringing on their way of doing things, their way of life, because they like walking 12 kilometers every day to a dirty well to carry it back to their kids. And they, they like that. They would prefer that. And, and I've actually heard these, these racist anthropologists acting like virtue signalers saying shit like that. Like, like if you took a, a vote of the people living in Central African Republic who only knew that way of life, if you asked them to vote, do you want nuclear energy they, or, or, or water produced by desalination or something? They would say no. They, they would prefer to do, do things that their way. That's true because they just don't know that this other thing exists. They've never seen a light bulb. Like, of course, they would vote to, to walk 12 miles a day to a dirty well, of course, because they don't know anything else, you know. But if, if you could actually show them that there's a, another way, they would absolutely vote for that. They would want to learn how to make that happen. So we've been all fed this very um, – see, imperialism, I think, in today's neo-colonial form, that's a little bit more difficult to see than the old days of African slave trades in, in uh, North America. It was easier because you're like, there's the slave. It's the person being whipped you know, by, by the, the, the head slave controlled by master in the house. That's the, that's the slave. You bought them. You got the deed. Today, it's, it's people who have been suffering from a positivist educational thinking who, who only look at, believe that truth is from what their senses say, uh, show them, see, and they're like, well, I, I don't see too much official slavery or look at Africa, like these kids in the, in the, in the cobalt mines. Yeah, it's too bad, but they don't have the same type of of enlightened workers uh, protection, but they're still getting paid 20 cents a day. So because they're getting paid now, all of a sudden they're not a slave. It's like, but why are they kids working in the mine and why are we only paying them 20 cents a day? And why are we? So all of these questions are just like 
put in the garbage because you're like, mm-hmm. but we're paying them, so it's not slavery. And 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 now you can go back to sleep and and just enjoy your dollar store, you know. And and people don't they just stop thinking about how our whole world has been rewired to be dependent upon increasing rates of poverty from actual people in slavery conditions. Um, and and there's an act of will. It's not just that we're stupid. There's an act of will to be stupid because we don't want to see um, the truth in some ways because it, it would force us. I think sub, there's a subjective element. It would force people to then. Uh, look within themselves to, 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 to change themselves and, ch- and, and, and change the world, which might make their lives difficult, make their jobs hard, you know, might make their life hard. So there's a, a, a desire to hold on to the official big stories that, that are all, you know, nice and make us feel all, all good inside. But, uh, but the reality is what it is. And, and like you said, um, I think that the, the way to look at China versus, the China example towards Africa is, is a really good case study to compare to, in contrast to what the French, the Belgian, the, especially the Anglo-American cartels have done to Africa. Because, you know, China, they're now, what, $200 billion of trade per year now is between China and Africa. That's a huge leap from what it, what it was 25 years ago, which is like $3 billion. That's $200 billion. The U.S. is down to less than $70 billion. The Chinese belt, global Chinese Belt and Road Initiative investments, 39% of the global Chinese Belt and Road Initiative investments outside of China are in sub-Saharan Africa, specifically. That's an important factor in, I think, a lot of what's going on. Um, I think the fastest growing regions are uh, uh, Namibia, Eritrea, uh, Tanzania. Niger is a big one. I mean, the the the, the amount of, of uranium and other, other uh, valuable resources in Niger is huge. The fact that Niger, the people of Niger, Niger, are are very much in favor of the coup, and the people in Nigeria, where the government of Nigeria, the the the, the puppet dictator there, has literally said we are we should go in militarily into Niger to re- reimpose uh, the ousted uh, leader was named Bazoum or something. Um, I, I got it written down here somewhere. Uh, yeah, Bazoum. Um, that's insane because this leader is supposed to represent the people of Nigeria. And the people of Nigeria next door are are actually 78% of the people polled are all for the current coup that happened in Niger. Because frankly, right. they know they're not being represented by their government and they, they would kind of like to have an actual representative government who cares about them and doesn't want to just work as peons for Western corporations in Nigeria. And so you've got this whole interesting phenomenon where because of the presence of Russia and China, Russia especially militarily, they've provided a sphere of military intelligence that has been unprecedented before 2015 when they went out into Syria to block the regime change there. there. Russia's presence in Africa supporting um, actual authentic governments of Africa against insurgencies that are often Western-funded through proxy groups. Um, Tigray People's Liberation Army is just one of many, the Boko Haram in Mali is but one of many CIA groups, offshoots of Al-Qaeda in the case of Boko Haram. Um, used for the purpose of destabilizing target governments that are not behaving the way you want them to. But now Russia is going in, China is going in, offering the military support needed for these governments to protect themselves, to put down these insurgencies. China is going in, actually offering investments into the real economy, building industrial um, corridors, factories. And so, yeah, they're benefiting by accessing now vital resources that they need. Of course, it's not they're not angels. But it's good common sense business that we should have been doing in the West and we would be doing if we hadn't sabotaged the JFK program 
for his approach to relations with 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 uh, Kwame Nkrumah and Lumumba and many other Pan-African leaders who were all either murdered or overthrown in coup d'etats, launched by the same CIA that killed JFK. Because JFK was actually helping to build the Volta River Dam on, in Ghana, the biggest hydroelectric dam in Africa's history up until the current Renaissance Dam of Ethiopia. That was the biggest, was JFK was the guy who pioneered and helped build this thing in the first place as a stepping stone which to what was supposed to be a, an, an industrial renaissance for all of Africa under a pan-African, and keep in mind, you know, Nasser is, is active as well in Egypt, leading a, a, a pan, uh, a pan-Arab revival as well around industrial development, new scientific discoveries, working together, avoiding divide to conquer trappings, creating economic abundance and affluence, um, working with Russia, with China, hopefully working with the United States. That was the, that was the dynamic of the sixties that was overthrown by a lot of murder by the CIA and MI6. So now we're seeing a revival of that in a new Pan-African sort of garb. Um, it, it's exciting that the Mali and, and, you know, the, uh, the, 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 um, the Burkina Faso governments who've also been through their own coups have leaders who I've listened to their speeches now. And I'm, I'm impressed. I, I sent some Thomas Sankara and especially the young leader of, uh, Burkina Faso. Yeah. All its stuff. And, and they all have signed like a military pact to defend Niger if there's any type of stupid onslaught. Um, from from the West or their their proxies at uh, ECOWAS, um, so it's it's a different paradigm, and I think because of Russia and especially China, who have created uh, such a sphere of 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 of, of protection in a, in, a, in a sense, uh, there, there's there's so much more to work with for many of these African leaders who wanted to do good, but because they had nothing to work with, they were forced. Um, like you've got Museveni of Uganda. He did some terrible things in his day, but I'm seeing like he's recognized. He's, he's like an older statesman who's been there for like 30 years. And he's like now recognizing that, holy shit, finally there's a way to get out of the trap. And the fact that he played the game, I think that that's not so great that he played the game the way he did. But the fact that he's now actually making some serious moves to bring Uganda into that Eurasian multipolar, um, space. In a very anti, with an anti-imperial understanding, alongside other African leaders who are all emerging, saying the same sort of thing, because now they feel safe to speak what they couldn't say before, is very important. So again, yeah, France is France asked to be part of the the South African BRICS summit coming up. Mm-hmm. Um, honestly, I I think that they should be allowed to attend um, and be put in a penalty box, but <laughs> at the same time, <laughs> for like a few decades, but. That sh- but but they should never be allowed to be members of the BRICS. <laughs> That's what anybody in France wants to think. But France has shown that there's at least a certain grouping within the French establishment who sees that they're being sabotaged by the Anglo-Americans and they're being flushed. They are being flushed. And that, I think, has a lot to do with some of what the, the, the business community who are all told that they have to die now, like Total, all like the entire industrial base is being told, okay, Green New Deal, everybody's going to eat bugs. We're not going to have oil. We're, we're going to shut down nuclear power. And they're, they're, they like pulled Macron and, and carried him to China, you know, like not that long ago and told him like, be nice, mm-hmm. uh, make deals and, uh, and break with the, the NATO policy. And so since then, France has been sort of walking in two worlds in a sense, you know, and, and it, it, that's why Japan was not, ended up not go- following through on the plan to install a NATO, a NATO mm-hmm. liaison base in Japan, which was supposed to happen this week. It was because France intervened and vetoed it saying, no, 
Um, and France signed like, you know, dozens of, of economic deals with China and, and settled, you know, natural gas per- purchases with Chinese yuan. But I think that there's, there's that element of messiness in it too. So it's not like France is evil because of this, but they have done evil and they are suffering from the evil that they have done. But at the same time, there's this other France that's also been there, which actually is a bit more self-aware of their self-interest and knows that they have no role to play in the new world order that's coming on that are trying to sort of like figure out ways of surviving. You saw the same thing in Saudi Arabia in its own way, right? With the mm. transformation of into sanity from the, the, the Saudi leadership, which was behaving very badly for so long. And now all of a sudden it started changing its character because they realized they had no fundamental security within the new world order that they were promised that they were going to be leaders of, or at least have a jurisdiction within. They're like, no, actually, we're a lot more Saddam Hussein-like than we thought. <laughs> um, so I think the same sort of thing is is going to be happening more and more to other other uh, corrupt players who might have a chance to rediscover what made them once good and learn how to rebehave according to some morality over a long time. They, again, penalty box. They should be in the penalty box for many, many years before they're allowed to have any part. They should be allowed to invest in Belt and Road projects. They should be allowed to do that, I think. And, and or African development projects initiated, you know, by the Pan-African movement, they should be allowed to invest and maybe, you know, have in- investors get returns for good things that are built, but they should have no role to play in deciding what those investments are or how they work or anything like that. They should just be allowed to be there as, a, as an observer, you know, okay. and maybe learn how to behave again. Uh, Betty says, and I know what this is for. He says, it's like some guy down the street deciding to park there in, in your living room uninvited. And is eating everything in your fridge. That is Western po- uh, foreign <laughs> policy. Now, you know, uh, speaking of that, um, and I, there's a few things, few more questions. He's been generous with his time. There are a few more questions I want to ask you, but I want to. At two o'clock, I gotta, I gotta jump oh, into okay. another interview. So we oh, have to. Okay, okay, okay. Just um, so check this out. I was as you were talking, I was doing the math. Um, we'll just say two hundred and eighty-eight dollars. I believe it was between two hundred and eighty-eight. To three hundred dollars that France was selling the uranium at, and uh, Niger was getting eleven dollars. That's three percent. That is three. Your country produces the resources, and you only get three percent. And of that three percent, the nation only gets forty percent because sixty percent of it is kickbacks to the leaders. This is outrageous, and I want you to give people an understanding of what I'm talking about. The size of Niger, because these maps make it look small. Niger, uh, uh, Niger is almost twice the size of the state of Texas. That gives you a idea of just how big that country is. Now, um, tr- I, I want, I want you in closing to talk about China, but I want to preface it with this because the United States always talks about, um, confronting China. Um, the West says that China is being belligerent. China is threatening the, the rules-based international order. While we know uh, that that is the mantra or that is the theme coming out of the West, China has lifted 850 million people out of poverty. That is equivalent to almost the entire population of Europe and the United States together. So instead of them being belligerent, shouldn't they take a, 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 the smart person would say, how do they do this? And, and then try to extract the information from that to lift their own smaller populations out of that same quagmire. 
what say you and where do you think this is leading between the United States and China? Hmm. Well, you're right. Once again, I mean, I, you know, your observations are astute and solid and, um, the, the, the human response to such, uh, an incredible achievement should be how do they do it? What can we learn from that? Um, the, the unhuman, uh, response is how can we destroy such a threat? I mean, what, what is that? Because I mean, at the end of the day, it's not capitalism, you know, and, and, and people again try to reduce this whole thing to like some capitalist communist, uh, communist dialectic. And it's not that at all. It's, it's so much more rich than that. Cause this fight was going on far before the days of the Cold War. This, these are just Cold War tropes that were like put onto us that we like were expected to fit into as a mold. Um, but this is a, a fight like, you know, I, we, I've been alluding to this. It goes back thousands of years. It's a continuous struggle. And before Karl Marx was born and before Adam Smith was born. Um, and you, you'll find that there, there are the, the type of capitalism that especially emerged out of 1971 and the creation of Davos out, which itself was created out of as a junior, sort of junior partner to the Bilderberger group, a slightly older pseudo capitalist, you know, globalist organization set up by Prince Bernhard of the Netherlands. Um, that thing that we were told was capitalism that became known as globalization that became the, the rules-based order um, was never capitalism. It was just feudalism with a capitalist veneer, but it was always fundamentally feudalism um, in its essence. Real capitalism involved the creation of capital. It, it involved creation and not, it's not just consumption. It's not just extraction of wealth. Um, and that's the way that value is defined under this feudal capitalist system. And that could include also the, the British East India Company's variety of capitalism that they were promoting to India and to, to Ireland and to Africa and to the world for so long, um, which itself was crafted in the bowels of the city of London, um, which itself was part of the takeover of the Venetian party inside of London that had managed the takeover of, of, uh, of what was formerly a viable British or English um, land, the land of Shakespeare, Thomas More, an anti-imperial land uh, of, of people like Erasmus, who were leaders of this thing, Henry VII, the, the great king who established one of the first nation-state systems based on, on an idea of natural law. That had to be, that was viable, but that had to be purged and overthrown in favor of transforming the character of England into becoming an empire, which is what happened, especially with the 1688 uh, Glorious Revolution that saw a puppet dictator brought in from the Netherlands as part of a, a you know, a, a sort of an, that was, that was the glorious revolution. And, and from there, a re-empowerment of the city of London, London financiers and leading families who were then able to coalesce and, and converge around, um, around this, this new beast that then established the Bank of England as the world's second central private central bank that then interfaced with a private uh, corporation called the British East India Company. Um, that was sort of, sort of a corporatist global empire. And so the, the idea of value within that empire was based on extraction of rents, of labor. Um, so like that was valuable. Like how many, how much more profit could an entrepreneur make was based upon how much, how many slaves he put to work or how many workers he forced to work longer hours. But there was no qualitative idea of improving the powers of labor through new discoveries. That wasn't allowed in the British system of value. You could speculate, you could gamble, 
on what you think the commodity prices would be in the future and make money on things like the 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 the, the, the South Sea bubble or you know the earlier Dutch tulip bubble or there's many bubbles you know that that are tied to gambling uh, principles not creating anything real but gambling so that was permitted um, you could do war profiteering that was permitted but uh, but the actual neither none of those ideas of value have any authenticity to them they're all destructive they will all they're all negative value in action so the actual um viable capitalism is based on creating abundance recognizing that we're, we're going to create better business when we have peace than if we have war because we're not going to kill our clients <laughs> we're not going to kill our customers we're going to end poverty because we know that by having people who are industrializing and living longer healthier lives they will be they will consume more of our products and we will be able to consume and purchase quality products that they make, right? It's just it's better common sense. It's not angelic because people would hear some of the, what I'm saying and they're like, they would be like, and I get this a lot. They're like, that's utopian. That's that's the world. It, it can't be run by angels that way. It's like, no, this is common. This is true self-interest. We've been living under such an insane world that's been normalized of of, of bad self-interest that we don't know what what reality is anymore. We don't know what a what a, what a natural reference point to to a healthy business looks like and then people say oh you know that 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 <clears throat> that involves moral values well if moral values are governing the behavior of economic investments well then isn't that socialism isn't that like isn't that socialism if you have like you know social principles animating morally the behavior of money and investment strategies isn't that socialism and doesn't it well no because there there again there's not one socialism just like there's not one capitalism you know what Lincoln was doing doesn't fit under any model of modern capitalism. What you'll find that there's feudal socialists who like socialists who actually like, like I mentioned, Bertrand Russell, HG Wells, they're socialists. They were, the Fabian society is a socialist organization. It caters to the, the disenfranchised, the alienated, the abused. That's how it works. They, but the people running it hate people. They hate the people that they profess that they want to defend. But what, how do they see the people? Well, they see them as weaponized mobs to be, that could be used, um, to overthrow governments you don't like or to support a policy of self-control that would otherwise enslave them. That's, that's the type of sort of socialism of the Fabian society ilk or the Trotskyists, I think, also were of that sort of ilk as well. Now, you, you, then you also have like socialists who you can work with. You know, Kwame Nkrumah identified himself as a socialist. Was Kwame Nkrumah a Fabian? Didn't know. He loved people. He, he didn't believe in overpopulation. He believed that it was through cultivating the powers of discovery in our people and pulling people out of poverty that you could uh, attain liberty. He was an anti-imperialist, and he really was. He died for that. Um, he was he was pro-development, pro-industry. Was he against private ownership? No, but he believed in social values and he believed in the government playing a role in doing things. Does that make you socialist? No. The whole oligarchy has been trying for, for centuries to destroy the sovereign nation state because the sovereign nation state can do things in defense of the people, by the people, and for the people's interests against the oligarchy who would rather everything be run by a private, private financier class. And any type of sovereign nation state that the oligarchy would like to permit exists has to simply be taken over and controlled by and used as a tool by said oligarchy and not for or by or of the people. That's a different, that's not the same kind of nation state as, as what we're defending, right? That's why they want ultimately world government with sub nations in name only 
to manage the slaves. That's what they did for Africa. You know, you think that a lot of the countries of Africa are sovereign countries, just like people think Ukraine is a sovereign country. No, they were wired to be organized corruption, obedient to a force outside of their country in order to manage the local um, slave crop uh, or uh, slave extraction. So that, that's what the world order has been under the British Empire and since the day especially of Franklin Roosevelt's early death and the launching of the bombs that Roosevelt never would have permitted and the purging of America of its patriots once Roosevelt was dead. All of the allies who understood the Wall Street, London, Fabian Society, Rhodes Scholar, Parasite growing as a deep state in their midst, they were purged, called Red Commies, and they lost everything. Some were killed. JFK tried to revive the spirit in a good way a few years later, but that didn't last long. His brother tried to revive it again in 68. That didn't last long. I, I do think that Trump actually is a, is a mixed bag, but I don't think that I would categorize him as a, as a evil technocratic board because he did too many things in my mind that disrupted the overarching depopulation agenda that um, I know that the oligarchy is committed to. So I'm not against Trump, but I do think he's stupid in, in ways that, that are frustrating. But I don't think of him in the same level as, let's say, a George Bush or a Dick Cheney or an Obama or a Biden. I, I wouldn't categorize him in that from my standpoint. But um, but I think that's why the oligarchy was so fanatically obsessed with ensuring that he was not able to do anything under, you know, four years of Russia Gate, you know, make-believe and stuff, um, where the other possibility was extracting the U.S. from NATO commitments, working with Russia, as he said he would, and I believe he was going to working with China on the U.S.-China trade deal to uh, to create a, a sort of healthy basis of win-win cooperation. I think that those were the things that we were moving in, which is why that all had to be stopped in uh, in what happened, um, which I, I, I know this might be strength to YouTube, so I don't want to say anything that might get this taken down from YouTube, so I won't. But all that to say, the oligarchy um, would benefit immensely by allowing development and ending poverty. That's good freaking business. China is doing good business. But it's also moral. It's not just pragmatic. It's also tied to a sense of, of natural law, or as the Chinese call it, the mandate of heaven, the Confucian principle that we have to abide by the, the, the structure of law embedded in, in the create, in the, cre- in creation itself. Very similar to what Augustine was talking about with natural law within the Christian matrix. Same idea. Um, so there is a positive virtue as well as something that appeals to the pragmatists out there who want to make money and just like, you know, <laughs> get by. It's good on every level to, to end poverty, end wars, work on uh, – there's other challenges. You know, the, the universe is always going to throw challenges at us, earthquakes and, and asteroids and solar flares that can knock out our electricity. Like those are real issues that are, that are always going to be there. We could be putting our, 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 our powers to solving real issues instead of the, the, the ones we make for ourselves by tolerating oligarchs who have to light fires and get us to fight each other. <laughs> those are artificial – problems we shouldn't have to deal with those if we're a mature species we should be able to think about the real problems now in closing thank you matt um and you know i gotta get you back on the platform again so i gotta get you back on the platform i know the time is limited you only have a few minutes to in between this and and your next interview so you can drop off the air and i'll hit you up later and um be blessed man uh give your wife my love be blessed and uh stay safe yeah, man, you too. All right, bye, and bye, everybody who's watching live. Okay. All right, man, thank you. Uh, yeah. Everybody who's watching, thank you all for joining. Now, I want to say a few things in parting. Um, we were supposed to have um, Scott Ritter on the show. I didn't announce it. Um, um, 
the last week or so of, of June, July. And we were supposed to have him sometime, um, um, I think it was, uh, so I'm sorry. This, this thing is bothering me for a second. Um, we were supposed to also have him, um, on, the, I think the 4th or the 5th of August. And what's happening is, now I have to call Scott now. What's happening is that Yahoo and Gmail are sending, um, Scott and my, um, responses to each other to spam. I, I've been missing Scott's, um, contact and something just told me to contact him the other day. And I'm like, man, it's like, uh, eight or nine communiques with, with Scott. Um, we're also supposed to be having, uh, listen, we're supposed to have Scott. We're going to have a few more guests on. We're supposed to have international podcast hosts, um, international, um, pundit and geopolitical, um, analyst, um, Carl Zarr. He is also a, a, a person that is on, uh, he frequents a lot of channels like RT and all that. Um, we're just trying to get a time frame, um, because he's, I think in Bali or whatever. So we're trying to get a time frame going for us um to have him on. I told you I'm trying to bring you guys the best and I'm trying to give you all um every avenue um to get information from. And I want to do it in a way that that's comfortable for you and that's informative for you. Now if I get back in time we'll do a live stream later on. Listen, if I get back in time we'll do a live stream later. I have a few things I have to take care of. You know life's life is on the outside of the the podcast also. So I just want to thank each and every one of you for giving me your time. As I often say in closing, that time is the greatest, com- uh, greatest um, commodity ever. Why? Because it's an unrenewable commodity. And once it is used up, you can never get it back. So when you give your time to someone or something, make sure that you get an equal or greater return for your time. And I hope and pray that this show has given you somewhat of an equal and even a greater return for your listening, for your watching, for your participation, and for your time. On that note, I go out the same way I came in with love in my heart for each and every one of you who love truth, but know that the true and living God, he will always love you better. Until we next speak again, stay strong, stay true, but above all things, stay righteous. Hey, mama, your baby boy loves you more than life. And before I go off, everybody, give a shout out to my brother, John Legs, my brother, Chris Legs, my sister Charlotte Legs, my sister Shalita Legs, my sister Charmaine Legs, my sister LaShondria Legs, and, and, um, my, of course my mother, of course. And shout out to my pops, rest in peace, John Legs. And, and I just want everybody in my family to know that I love you. Um, let us grow together. And for everybody who's listening, before I go off there, know this, that if you know better, do better. Do better by people. Because ultimately, you don't have to answer to them. You have to answer to the ultimate judge, and that is God in person. Mama, you know I love you. Everybody deuces, I'm out.